A short time ago, an American airplane dropped one bomb on Hiroshima and destroyed its usefulness to the enemy. That bomb has more power than 20,000 tons of TNT. The Japanese began the war from the air at Pearl Harbor. They have been repaid many-fold, and the end is not yet. With this bomb, we have now added a new and revolutionary increase in destruction to supplement the growing power of our armed forces. In their present form, these bombs are now in production, and even more powerful forms are in development. It is an atomic bomb. It is a harnessing of the basic power of the universe. The force from which the sun draws its power has been loosed against those who brought war to the Far East. We are now prepared to destroy more rapidly and completely every productive enterprise the Japanese have in any city. We shall destroy their docks, their factories, and their communications. Let there be no mistake, we shall completely destroy Japan's power to make war. It was to spare the Japanese people from utter destruction that the ultimatum of July the 26th was issued at Potsdam. Their leaders promptly rejected that ultimatum. If they do not now accept our terms, they may expect a reign of ruin from the air, the like of which has never been seen on this earth. Behind this air attack will follow sea and land forces in such numbers and power as they have not yet seen and with the fighting skill of which they are already well aware. The decision to drop the atomic bomb on two cities in Japan was not one that came easily to President Truman. So before finalizing this decision, he organized a panel of logistics officers, military strategists, and other uniquely qualified personnel to come up with an alternative option to drop in the atom bomb. After the studies were completed and the numbers were crunched, the strategist had come up with four options to try to end the war with Japan. Option 1. Conventional bombing of the Japanese home islands. While the United States began conventional bombing of Japan as early as 1942, the mission did not begin in earnest until mid-1944. Between April 1944 and August of 1945, an estimated 333,000 Japanese people were killed and 473,000 more were wounded in these air raids. A single firebombing attack on Tokyo in March of 1945 killed more than 80,000 people. President Truman later remarked, Despite their heavy losses at Okinawa and the firebombing of Tokyo, the Japanese refused to surrender. The saturation bombing of Japan took much fierce tolls and wrought far and away more havoc than the atomic bomb. The firebombing of Tokyo was one of the most terrible things to have ever happened and they didn't surrender after that, although Tokyo was almost completely destroyed. By August of 1945, it was clear that conventional bombing was not effective. Option 2. Ground Invasion of the Japanese Home Islands The United States could launch a traditional ground invasion of the Japanese Home Islands. However, experience showed that the Japanese did not easily surrender. They had been willing to make great sacrifices to defend the smallest of islands. They were likely to fight even more fiercely if the United States invaded their homeland. 
During the Battle of Iwo Jima in 1945, 6,200 United States soldiers died. Later that year on Okinawa, 13,000 soldiers and sailors were killed. Casualties on Okinawa were 35%. One out of three U.S. participants were wounded or killed. President Truman was afraid that an invasion of Japan would look like, quote, Okinawa from one end of Japan to the other, end quote. Casualty predictions varied, but all were high. The price of an invasion would be millions of Americans dead and wounded. These estimates did not include Japanese casualties. President Truman and his military advisors assumed that ground invasions would, quote, be opposed not only by available organized military forces of the empire, but also by a fanatically hostile population, end quote. Documents discovered after the war indicated they were correct. Despite knowing that their cause was hopeless, Japan planned a resistance so ferocious, resulting in costs so appalling, that they had hoped that the United States would simply call for a ceasefire where each nation would agree to stop fighting and would retain the territory they occupied at that time. Almost a quarter million Japanese casualties were expected in the invasion. President Truman wrote, quote, My objective is to save as many American lives as possible, but I also have a human feeling for the women and children of Japan, end quote. By August of 1945, it appeared inevitable that the Japanese civilians would have to suffer more death and casualties before the surrender. A ground invasion would result in excessive American casualties as well. Option 3. Demonstration of the atomic bomb on an unpopulated area. Another option was to demonstrate the power of the atomic bomb to frighten the Japanese into surrendering. An island target was considered, but it raised several concerns. First, who would Japan select to evaluate the demonstration and advise the government? A single scientist? A committee of politicians? How much time would elapse before Japan communicated its decision? And how would that time be used? To prepare for more fighting? Would a nation surrender based on the opinion of a single person or a small group? Second, what if the bomb turned out to be a dud? This was a new weapon not clearly understood. The world would be watching the demonstration for a new weapon so frightening that the enemy would surrender without a fight. What if this super weapon didn't work? Would that encourage Japan to fight harder? Third, there were only two bombs in existence at the time. Though more were in production, dud or not, would it be worth it to expend 50% of the country's atomic arsenal on a demonstration? In May of 1945, Truman informed his interim committee, a committee to advise the president about matters pertaining to the use of nuclear energy and weapons. The committee's first priority was to advise on the use of the atomic bomb. After prolonged debate, the president received the committee's historic conclusion. We can propose no technical demonstration that would be likely to bring the end to the war. We can see no acceptable alternative to direct military use. Option 4. Use of an atomic bomb on a populated area. President Truman and his advisors concluded that only bombing a city would make an adequate impression. Any advance warning to evacuate a city would endanger the bomber crews. The Japanese would be forewarned and would attempt to shoot them down. The target cities were chosen carefully. First, it had to be a city that had suffered little damage from conventional bombing, so that it couldn't be argued that the damage came from anything other than the atomic bomb. It must be a city primarily devoted to military production. This was complicated, however, because in Japan, workers' homes were intermingled with the factories so that it was impossible to find a target that was exclusively military. Finally, President Truman stipulated that it could not be a city of traditional cultural significance to Japan such as Kyoto. President Truman did not seek to destroy the Japanese culture or its people. 
The goal was to destroy Japan's ability to make war. So on the morning of August 6, 1945, the American B-29 bomber, the Enola Gay, dropped the world's first atomic bomb on the city of Hiroshima. During the final stages of World War II, the United States detonated two nuclear weapons over the Japanese cities of Hiroshima and Nagasaki on August 6th and August 9th of 1945. Welcome to another episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast. I am your host, Don Abernathy. I felt it was important that on today's episode, we open up with some historical information into finalizing the decision to drop the world's first atomic bombs in no way of a celebration, but more of a historical reminder of the dropping of the atomic bombs on the Japanese cities of Hiroshima and Nagasaki some 73 years ago today. And joining us on the phone tonight, a World War II vet served in the United States Navy, Fireman First Class, Mr. Ray Larson. Ray, how you doing tonight? I'm doing fine, thank you. First off, let me say thank you for um, giving me a little bit of your time tonight and agreeing to sit down and do this interview with me. I greatly appreciate it. No problem. Let's start at the beginning. Um, Where did you grow up? Well, let's put it this way. (laughs) I was born in Michigan, raised in South Dakota, and graduated from high school and business college in Minnesota. Nice. You're kind of like me. I've I've been all over the country. Right. Yeah. Do you remember where you were on Pearl Harbor? Yes, I sure do. You mean December 7th? Yes, I sure do. A friend of mine and I, or in fact, he was my cousin, we were listening to a radio station called Lights Out. And, of course, we had the lights out when they came over the air and said Pearl Harbor being has just been bombed by the Japanese. And uh, I'm sure, much like a lot of people at that time, one of your first thoughts was, where in the hell is Pearl Harbor at? Yeah. Well, we then, of course, we heard later, you know, it was in Hawaii. And then, then the next day at school... When they um, they had the radio station on, where Frank uh, President Roosevelt declared war on Japan. What grade were you in at the time? Uh, eighth grade. And so it was probably what a three or four short years before you were able to join up. Yeah, because see, then right after that we moved to Minneapolis, and then. I didn't even finish school when I went and enlisted in the Navy. So how old were you when you enlisted? About 17? I was 17, yes. Yes. What was Minnesota like back in 1942? Obviously, it's a huge metropolitan area now, but what was it like 73, 74 years ago? Minneapolis, you mean? Yeah, I apologize. Well, see, I, did, I wasn't there that much because... Like I say, I I just went to I was going in high in school in my so, um, sophomore year, and then then I listed. So you know it was very nice because we never hardly we never locked the doors at night when we go to bed and all that. Leave the car doors unlocked, no problem at all. After you enlisted, where did they ship you off to boot camp? 
Uh, Farragut, Idaho. So they sent you to a landlocked state for a naval boot camp? Yes, yes. It wasn't too far. We weren't too far from Seattle, Washington. Do you remember the name of the camp? All I know was Farragut, Idaho. I don't even know if we had a name for the camp. And how long were you in, in Idaho before you finalized boot camp and went actually off to your first vessel? Let's see. I got there in September. I had appendicitis attack. Had to have an operation at midnight. And then, so I got delayed a little bit. So you had appendicitis the day you arrived at boot camp, or was it a few days later? Yeah, in, yes, in boot camp. Yes. And then it was, I got to go home for Christmas. And then right after Christmas, I was put on a, on a troop ship when I got back. Well, if you think about it, you kind of got lucky in a way because we're better to have appendicitis than at a military facility where you have access to some of the better health care. Could you imagine going through yeah. that back home without the government's assistance when it came to the surgery and the hospital bills? Right. Yeah. Had all my teeth taken care of, too. Well, there's a bonus. Well, really, if you want to think, they took all my teeth out the upper the upper part, give me a plate. So, yeah. Do you remember anything of your experience when you first showed up to boot camp? Well, the first thing we learned when we got in the Navy, boy, everything is yes, sir, no, sir. There was no smarting off. Or, and if one person screwed up the whole platoon got penalized. So if you made a mistake, you, your platoon had to get up at midnight, say run a couple laps around the track. You made sure you didn't make screw up, because otherwise you'd have all these other sailors after you. Now, in the Navy, obviously, the boot camp is going to be based heavily about the procedures on the vessel and the different armory on the ships, but I assume you guys also had to do some sort of rifle training, firearms training, other than what you were oh, using yeah, on the we ships? Had to, we had to do rifle training, and I can't remember how you did it, Chad. You know, if you ever watch these people, whatever they do, how they cross it and up and down. and Yeah, we had to learn how to do that. See, I've never touched a gun since, because I've never been a hunter. Sure. Do you remember how you did on the range? Were you a decent rifleman? Were you okay? Were you? Did you excel at it? Well, we really didn't do anything on the range because we were in the Navy. So sure, I don't ever remember being on the on the on the range. So, I don't recall that. So you guys just had the basic of firearms training. What was your? Uh, it wasn't like Marines or Army. Sure, where they're always going to carry a, a rifle or whatever. And say so you got to spend one more Christmas at home, and then they shipped you out. Where did they ship you out to? Um, I went. I was on a troop ship, and we got to Hawaii. And when I got to Hawaii, we had a, a day off. And um, at that time, we were sending um, food over to, like, to Saipan. And, you know, we had to load the ship load the trucks with, and I'll tell you, that was scary because 
not for us, but the truck drivers, because some of them never came back. And, the, you know, the thing is, when somebody went and searched for them, they found the truck, they found the two men in the truck, and both had been beheaded. You know, that's one of the things that kind of, I don't want to say gets lost to history, but that doesn't get covered very much. And what a lot of people who don't study the war, one of the things they don't realize is the Japanese were very, very fanatical. They had no yeah. they had no concerns with anything following the Geneva Convention. And it was because of that behavior, because they forced their rules of war onto the Marines and to the Navy, it didn't take very long after the arrival on Guadalcanal, I think it was the Goyette Patrol, on a uh, combat patrol, no, I apologize. They captured a Japanese infantry soldier. He said that his group was wanting to surrender. And so they sent out a patrol to apprehend this group. It turned out to be an ambush. And during the ambush, Goyette himself took a bullet to the head. The party was originally set up of 25 Marines. Only four of them made it back to the lines by swimming. Because basically throughout the night, the Marines were picked off one by one by the Japanese as one of the few survivors was swimming out into the ocean to get away from the beachhead where they were stuck at, they claimed to have seen the sabers in the night from where the Japanese were mutilating the bodies of the Marines, dead, wounded, and still alive. So out of a 25-person party going out on somewhat of a humanitarian mission to find these wounded and sick Japanese soldiers who they were told were willing to surrender, they were ambushed, completely decimated, not only that, but the Japanese had a real bad habit of whenever whenever there's a skirmish with the Marines and after the battle was over, we would send our corpsmen out to try to patch up the Japanese soldiers to help keep them alive. But their training is to take out as many enemy with your one life. And so when our corpsmen were trying to help the Japanese soldier, they would blow themselves up with grenades trying to take out as many corpsmen and, and Marines as possible. And so that's why... It didn't take very long for the Marines to stop even trying to take prisoners or trying to help um, save the lives of wounded Japanese soldiers because they realized we were going to lose more men trying to help them because of their their fanatical way of, you know, combat. Yeah, I remember one time we went on vacation, my wife and I and another close couple, when we went to Hawaii on our vacation, and we went to see where the Arizona was. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it really gives you goosebumps because you see all this water bubbling. And they say, well, that's still from some of the people that are down there. Scary. Gives you goosebumps. I, I can only imagine that's one of the things I hope to do over the next few years is one day I would love to visit Pearl Harbor and I want to kind of go back to that before you start talking about you know Saipan obviously you got stationed in the Navy they shipped you out from the mainland down to Hawaii I'm assuming that you your first port was I guess the area of Pearl Harbor that you were still able to get into or did they send you somewhere else in Hawaii well what happened is I got, we had, you know, I was on this troop ship. And then one day I got called into the captain's office. And I'm saying, what did I do wrong now? 
Well, it turned out it was nothing I did wrong. It was that he said, you are being transferred to another ship because the per- the person that I, I was replacing, now this is really something. He said, the person that you're replacing, he was out swimming in the ocean and he drowned. And his name happened to be Larson. Wow. So another Larson replacing the other Larson. So, so then I got put on a rocket ship. So they basically went down the rosters of, of men qualified for your position, which I guess we should, uh, that'd be the next appropriate question. What was your station on the vessel in the, in the Navy? What, what exactly? Well, was in the Navy, in my troop ship, on general quarters, I, I manned, I was, we had a, like a five-inch gun or three-inch gun. I can't remember which one it was, but um, they had the one guy on the right, on the port side. He would, he would um, man the gun going back and forth, and I would man it going up and down until we got our object in sight. And then when they had in sight, they would yell from the, I'd get the command from the ship or the quarter, and I would I would pull the trigger to shoot the gun. Now, were you- fortunately, we didn't have to do it because we were just doing the practice. That was the troop ship, yeah. Then they decided that I was a seaman, they'd make me a fireman. And since I had been a seaman, I could go downstairs and I could do the job of two people. And that was to command the engines. They would get give you the command of the, what they wanted full speed ahead or what or so many degrees to the left or right, whatever. And I would do that all down there in the dark. How long of a shift would you work? Whatever they needed me. I gotcha. Whenever they needed me, yes. But usually it'd be, it'd be like, uh, I can't remember, sometimes it might be like a four-hour shift and you're off like four hours and back on. But most of the time, you weren't down there. You're only there when, on general quarters. Okay. Because otherwise, everything was controlled up above where they could see everything. Sure. So, and this was just in case the power went out. I got you. If power, then I'd have to do it manually. And I'll tell you, that first time was... You're doing it in the dark. You're trying to steer it with one hand, control the other with a flashlight, trying to see what you're doing. I'll tell you what, when you get done, I was just I was just wet with perspiration. Well, I can imagine. I mean, you're down in a very small, confined quarters inside of a right. ship. You're, it's all steel walls and iron. You got, what, six diesel? How many yeah. diesel motors were in that one room? I have no idea. It's hot, it's humid, it's loud. 
you're in the dark. I'm sure at a certain point it all becomes muscle memory, but like you said, the very first time you did it, you're just nervous and you're fanatical and you're just trying to make sure you get the job done because it's up to you. And at that point, you really hadn't had the, other than training, you haven't had the real world experience of doing that in the dark. See, this was only just general quarters. Otherwise, I was up on the mange and doing it and doing the steering there now, on the main on the main on my regular job. Once you shipped out of Pearl Harbor, and you're finally going into the Pacific itself, over to over towards you know the islands and the island hopping. Um, you mentioned earlier about Saipan. Where was the first area that you guys performed any real operations at? Well. Not really much because we just, we had the supplies that were flowing in or that we took on our ship from the States. And then we we sent them over by truck. So we never, I never really got to Saipan. Sure. A lot of stuff I can't remember. Sure, not a problem. So were you, you primarily on the troop transport or were you on a... um? or more logistical moving of equipment and the transport of uh, the ammo, the food, and the vehicles? The first one's troop ship. We, um, we transported the Marines from the from United States to Hawaii. You primarily uh, ferrying them from the um, United States to Hawaii, or did you go out past Hawaii as well? No, we just were right in Hawaii itself, yeah. Yeah, we never, we never really went any place. The only place we were time was the Pacific Ocean, between Hawaii and and San Diego. What was your first impressions of the Marines when they first came on a troop transport that you're on? Did you look at them any differently? Were they just another one of the guys in a different uniform? When they got on, they were just like any other human being. They were. I don't re. Maybe there might have been a couple in the Navy that thought they were better than you, but basically, I can't say that of hardly any. I don't. I don't remember a single one in the Marines that they all treated us with respect, and so in turn, we we treated them with respect. Well, because it was... They were just like we were best friends. Sure. A lot of the Marines said, you know, they'd been on different ships. And I guess we were fortunate that we had the best cooking crew. Because everybody just loved the food that we had on our ship. Well, I can imagine that's, that's huge, especially when you're at sea and your transport there's very little to do i mean you essentially wait in line you eat breakfast and then you get back at the end of line for for you know your next meal and so when you're a marine who's basically you're in transport your job all day is to sit around and wait and maybe do some some slight well, training with a little bit of room you have your your day probably looks sure. forward to the to the meal sure a lot and, and a lot of the marines but they they played a lot of poker too. You know, 
had that thumb do past time. Yeah. Or they or they'd sit and read or they they were they were at leisure. When you first left San Diego to go to Hawaii for the first time and you're going underneath the Golden Gate Bridge and it's your first time obviously not only away from home but away from leaving the country, do you remember what your first impressions was or what you thought about when you're you know, you're passing underneath the Golden Gate Bridge and you're looking out over the horizon and not sure exactly where you're heading. Do you remember, you know, the feelings you had that, at that point? Well, I guess when you're that age, you don't even know what fear is. Sure. You're just out there to do what what they tell you to do, and you do it without any without any questions asked. You just say, yes, sir, or no, sir, whatever. Yeah, and it was just... And sometimes it got pretty rough out there. And a lot of times it'd be so rough that none of us could be topside. You had to go down below. And boy, there were a lot of us that got that got seasick from all that motion. Well, I can imagine. Yeah. I mean, it's bad enough when you have a rough ocean and the boat's rocking. But at least when you're topside, you can kind of look at the horizon and, and kind of, if you will, mentally try to... Yeah. get your bearings but when you're down below and you have nothing to look at it it just makes the whole experience that much worse yeah but it was strange too it, you know the thing is we had to start times we'd be eight hours on eight hours off and that's when i learned to drink coffee black yeah i'll tell you the, the coffee we had was so strong you could almost put a spoon in it and and chew it but that's to make sure we stayed awake. Absolutely. I mean, you guys are, there's a lot of uh, responsibility on, on the backs of all you uh, young men. Yeah. Do you have a particular fond memory or an event that happened, whether it was on leave or on, on your troop ship at any point during your service that you like to think back fond on fondly? Well, the only thing that one time when we were coming from the United States, we had a, we got so close to what they call a tidal wave that can almost tip your ship upside down. That was the scary part. And that's when a lot of the naval people got seasick because of that ship was so rough. You know, hitting those waves up and down, up and down, you know. Oh, I remember one other thing that stands out in my memory. Sure. We were, com- we were coming back from the United States when we got word that President Roosevelt had died. We were in the middle of in the Pacific Ocean when that we got that word. What was the feeling around the ship on that day? I'm sure everybody was very um, Oh, down. everybody was. They were down in. They were in shock. Everybody was in shock. For most of you guys, you know, the 18-year-olds and younger, he was really the only real president you guys really remembered at that point. Yeah. Because he had been president for most of even, adult we life. We weren't even old enough to vote yet. Yeah. But we were old enough to die for our country, but not old enough to... Not old enough to vote. Yeah. Now, you said you joined up the Navy at the age of 17. Did your parents have to sign for you? 
Well, they had to sign for me, yes. How'd your mother feel about that? Sad. Did you they ha- both were sad. They were both sad about it. But I'm sure there's parts of them that were proud that you were willing well, to... Well, see, the thing is, I didn't want to be drafted and go in the Army. I said, if I'm going to service, I'm going to Navy. That's why I wanted to enlist. Yeah, I hear that a lot where a lot of a lot of the guys were thinking, you know, at least if I enlist, I have somewhat of a choice of where I'm going, whether it's the Marine Corps, whether it's, you know, the Airborne or, you know, the Navy, the Air Force. Whereas if you wait around and take your chances, you're pretty much, you have no real choice of what your options are. Yep. Do you remember where you were when you heard the announcement of the bombing of Nagasaki or um, Hiroshima? Yeah, I think I was home because back in Minneapolis, because what happened when I was ready to to get discharged, they wanted the skeleton crew to go out there and they asked if I wanted to. You know, anybody could go, they volunteer. They're not going to force anybody. And I said, no, I just want to get out of here and get home. And what was it like when you got home? Obviously, you went back from Pearl Harbor into San Francisco, and then I assume you took a train home? Well, when I got home, of course, back then, um, back in wherever I got, we, we had to take a train, a train from wherever it was, Oakland, California, whatever it was, to Minneapolis. And how many years were you in the service? Well, July of 1940. I'd have to look it up. But it was somewhere right in, I would say, well, not not quite two years. And what was it like when you know you're coming home after being overseas for two years? Were a lot of your friends still gone, or had they have they been returned at that point? No, no, because a lot of them, my age, they they didn't have to they didn't have to go. So I know I got them. I was just looking at it today because I went on that um, what they call the um, let's see where is it. Oh, August 26, 1944 to June 1946. You mentioned earlier that you were stationed on USS Fallon for a while, correct? On Hawaii Island, yeah. Now, were you on the Fallon when it returned back to um, San Diego in late 45? No, 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 I wasn't. Okay. No, no, I wasn't. No, you're on in January '46. Yeah, I don't remember. Remember when I went on on that on the um, rocket ship. So one of the questions I like to ask our veterans, um, I think we can all kind of uh, agree that the world is getting a little crazy right now. Um, some people claim that the younger generation aren't. Um, up to the task that some of the generations came before them. 
is there any advice that you would offer up to the younger generation when it comes to being successful in life or I'll tell you what I don't I don't agree with these people that will not stand up when they're playing the national anthem I don't believe in sitting down I believe you should stand I couldn't agree with you more. And and the other problem we have is when at sporting events, if people do stand, a lot of a lot of the gentlemen always forget to take their hats off, and that's another big thing too. You know, oh, standing, yes, standing yes. is only half the take, half of it. Take their hat off across their heart. Yes, yes, yes. Let's back up a little bit to the end of the war. You just got home from serving three years in the Navy. After you came home, you got your honorable discharge. What did you do next? Did you go back to school? Did you go into the workforce? Yeah, I, I went, I applied for, I went to finish high school. I hadn't finished high school yet when I went in. I had like a year and a half to go. Now, did So at that time, you could study on your own. So... Then you just take oral examinations. And um, I had a year and a half to go, and I finished it in like three months. Because I did a lot of studying. Sure. Well, and after you got your diploma, what was next for you in your, your young adult life? I went to a business college. What was your degree in? Well... Business college is just a year graduate of um, business administration. So I ended up in accounting. And how long were you an accountant? Well, till I retired. Um, I started in, trying to remember when I, well, 1956 to 1989. Yeah, 30, 32 and a half years. And then I was credit manager, credit collection manager, along with accounting. That's a rough job, collecting on credit. Yeah, but the thing is, you, you dealt, I dealt with company. I didn't deal with personal sure. credits. Yeah, that makes it a lot easier. That was interesting and fascinating. I didn't mind that one bit because... It's surprising how many people really were cooperative, you know. Well, especially when it but comes there to... Were others, there were others that you'd, you'd have to say, okay, we gotta, can't ship you anything more until you make such and such a payment. And, of course, when you're dealing with businesses, their whole goal and objective is to stay in business and to achieve. And so, kind of like you were saying earlier, it's easier to deal with a business when it comes to collecting credit than it is just your regular civilian or end user because they can be not only reluctant to make this payments, but they can get take it personally and, you know, yeah. be more of a um, an adversary when trying to conversate with them uh, opposed to when you're dealing with businesses and business owners. Their goal is to try to work with you, make some sort of payment plan so they can continue to keep their business operating and trying to generate revenue to pay pay back more of the debts. Well, Ray, I appreciate your time. I want to thank you so much for sitting down with us. 
I want to thank you for your service. You have a good day. Thank you, sir. Okay. Bye-bye. And that is going to wrap up another episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast, your new favorite World War II podcast. I am your host, Don Abernathy. I want to thank everybody for their continued support for our little podcast. Uh, please spread the word. If you know anybody who has any interest whatsoever in anything World War II, send them a link to our website or perhaps send them a like request to our Facebook page. And once again, I'd like to thank Mr. Ray Larson for coming on the show with us tonight. Thank you so much for your service and uh, providing us a little glimpse into your World War II experience. Please check us out on Facebook. You can find us on Facebook at Scuttlebutt Podcast. You can track me down on Twitter. Just search for at Donovan410. That's D-O-N-A-V-I-N-410. My name shows up as Don A. And you can also find me on Instagram. You can search for me there at DTrain96K. And if you're also a fan of the podcast format, and you like what I do here on this show, but you would like to hear me outside of the World War II realm, you can check out my full entertainment podcast I do with a friend of mine, Dave. It's called The Waterman and D-Train Show. You can find information on that show, as well as everything else, links to all my social media at d-410.com. If you're an iTunes user, you can simply find our podcast on iTunes. Just search WTSP in the search bar. Please give us a five-star rating and review. And if you're a Stitcher user, we're on Stitcher as well. Simply, once again, search for WTSP. Add us to your favorite shows. Please spread the word, and we'll keep the show going. Thanks so much, and we'll talk to you next week.